Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this lecture. This is one of the uh, LSE public lectures. Uh, this evening's uh, guest speaker is uh, Professor Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Uh, he's going to speak about anti-fragility and how to live in a world we don't understand. Um, I wanted to take a few minutes to, to tell you a little bit about uh, Professor Talib's background. He's, uh, in fact, had uh, three different careers. Uh, he's certainly a professor, but he's only become a professor sort of fairly recently. Uh, he was initially a trader, a very successful career as, as a derivatives uh, trader. He's also, for a long period of time, uh, written um, uh, philosophical essays. And uh, recently, as I say, he's, he's turned academic, um, this year uh, is, is uh, one of the years where we see um, uh, uh, leaked tables on the most sort of uh, downloaded papers, and it turns out Professor Talib is in the top five SSRN uh, most downloaded papers. Um, in terms of his academic background, in terms of his uh, academic background, he, um, he studied at the University of Paris. He has an MBA from uh, Wharton Business School. He has a PhD from uh, Dauphine. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, worked as a derivatives trader across a number of uh, organizations, uh, BNP, uh, Credit Suisse First Boston, uh, UBS. Uh, he's also um, uh, lectured at a number of universities, uh, uh, the SAID Business School in Oxford, the London Business School, uh, Wharton Business School. Uh, he's also uh, been lecturing at uh, the University of Massachusetts in uh, Amherst. Um, in terms of uh, his present position, uh, his academic position is at NYU's uh, Polytechnic Institute. He's a distinguished professor of risk engineering there. He's uh, written a, a number of books. Uh, uh, he's uh, written one uh, that you well, probably familiar with called Black Swan. Uh, that book was written at, at, uh, at, in terms of timing, it was absolutely brilliant. In 2007, uh, essentially predicting the, uh, the financial crisis. Uh, that book went on to sell over 3 million copies. It was, uh, I think, translated into over 30 languages. Uh, it, uh, it was uh, in, in one of the top uh, uh, publications by the New York Times uh, list uh, for 36 weeks. Um, uh, the Times uh, journalist Brian uh, Appleyard referred to Professor Talib as one of the hottest thinkers in the world uh, shortly after the publication of that book. Uh, in terms of his new book, Anti-Fragility, which he has copies here, and he'll be signing copies for you later on if you uh, promise to purchase one. Um, in terms of that book, I, I think the reviews are fascinating. Uh, the uh, Financial Times' uh, Gillian Tatt, who, who, who also delivered a lecture here recently, uh, thinks that the book is appealing and powerful. The Economist thinks of the book as being interesting and thought-provoking. Uh, the Guardian thinks that uh, it, it was uh, dispiriting and antisocial, uh, it turns out. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Professor Talib is going to, I think, talk a little bit about the barbell theory. And looking at those reviews, it looks like they're also sort of quite uh, extremes. Um, I read the book uh, 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 on a flight to and back from Nairobi uh, over the past week, uh, so it was very good reading. I thought it was, it was punchy, uh, it was spicy, it was illuminating, uh, it was not fragile uh, in, in any sense. Uh, I really liked one part of the book which suggested that uh, procrastination is actually a good thing, uh, and <laughs> Professor Talib may, may even talk about that a little bit. 
Um, so uh, before I, I invite uh, uh, Nassim Talib to, to speak, uh, just to remind you to put your mobile phones in silent. Uh, if you want to hook on to Twitter, then the hashtag is LSE uh, Talib. The uh, event is being recorded, and hopefully there will be a podcast coming out fairly soon. Uh, Professor Talib will speak for about 45 minutes, after which we'll have about 40 to 45 minutes of questions and answers, uh, after which you'll be able to get a signed copy of the book. Uh, so let me invite then Professor Talib. Thank you. How does I'm trying to figure out how this works? Uh, technology is fragile. Okay, so this is the, the book. It has a different title in the United States, Things That Gain From Disorder. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, people keep inviting me uh, back here. This is, I think, my f- third time in this place and fourth time overall. Actually, fifth time in, in at LSE, so visibly there's got to be something. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe I'm not aggressive enough. You know, the idea is uh, if you do the right job, people should not invite you back. So maybe I'll, I'll give it a try. And you probably didn't read that chapter on lecturing birds how to fly. Because typically, people get angry. I got angry reading it. Anyway. So the, uh, the book is, uh, okay, let me explain to you what's happening. I think I figured out why uh, politicians are very stupid. Because you start with, you know, you start off of low IQ and then it drops. I've been like on a road like a politician, <clears throat> trying not to say the same thing, but ending up saying the same thing. And since last Monday, I was here last Monday, I've been, you know, all over the map. And then you change hotel, you, you wake up, you don't know which hotel room you're in. And then they put you in front of journalists who don't know that you write books on philosophical topics and want to know exactly what you think of the UK budget. And I had autumn something. Like today, I was on, on radio, I couldn't figure out what she was talking to me about. And you had to spin, get a, a very dignified way out of it without you know, offending the person. So things are hard on book tour. And I promise the next time, if you invite me back, it will be outside of the book tour where I can talk. Anyway, so I'm not going to do the book tour thing. I'm going to talk about the idea of anti-fragility at a scientific level while connecting it to the book. I wrote this book at uh, three levels. The first one is sort of like the essay style, uh, where you progressively get into a topic, and you make sure that no reviewer is able to skim the book. That that was a rule I followed, was fooled by randomness. Reviewers skim books, they get irritated, and effectively you had the experience of a few of them. They cannot soon figure out, and for example, title. you, You pick a title, it should not connect to what's inside. All right? <laughs> it makes it very entertaining. You should surprise. That's the idea of randomness. You face randomness unpredictable. If it's too, a textbook, you should know exactly. So this is why people don't read textbooks. But uh, um, you put, uh, like, if you look at my titles, I have, uh, what does it say, something about Talos, Fat Tony, or, and the Fragilistas. There's no way you can figure out what I'm talking about in the chapter of Fat Tony and Fragilistas. Uh, via Negativa, or going to Orthodox theology, to get to robust systems, the, the titles are very Empedocles' title, uh, tile, um, another chapter title, and then the subsections also are confusing, but it makes for a, a reading experience. It doesn't make for reviewing. So if you are into reviewing the book, you'd better read it because I can catch reviewers who haven't read the book very easily. 
like the Guardian guy can catch it. This book is on convexity, I'm going to see, and there's 607 mention of convexity, and he didn't catch one of them. <laughs> so you can tell. The other way I do it is it's much more practical than what I usually do is you put a check for 5,000 pounds, page 236 of the book, <laughs> the central chapter, and wait, you know, to see how long it takes before it's cashed. All right. And effectively, that's what uh, the, the, I think none of the ones we put at Penguin, we sent, none of the page 236 checks have been cashed. So there's something about the book. Anyway, so let me start with the concept of fragility, because this book is not so much about anti-fragile as much as it is about the fragile. Uh, is it, I was an option trader for, for 20 years. And I don't know if you've been an option trader, but once an option trader, I mean, you can't, you're done. You can't really, uh, your social life becomes dysfunctional permanently, as well as a lot of things become uh, special. But there's one thing it does to you, it's force you to view the world in two categories. One class of things that gain from disorder, things that gain from disorder. The other class, things that are harmed by disorder. Is there an option trader in the room? Okay, very good. What do you call the first one? First class is what? Gain from disorder. Sorry? No, convex is a functional transformation of that. We're going to get to that. It's very good. What, what is the, the, uh, the option term for it? Long gamma. Okay, so you're long gamma or short gamma. You agree? All right, neutral gamma, it happens to you every six years uh, uh, on Friday noon, you know, for two hours. You know, it's, it's rare to be in a situation that's neither, that, that's not one of the two. Long gamma and short gamma, okay? So what I'm saying is not very complicated for option traders, but it's very complicated for non-option traders. I don't know why, okay? Can some option trader explain to me why it's difficult for others? Can, can someone tell me? Okay, this whole book is about this category of objects. Now... When I ask people, what's the opposite of fragile? If you map fragile as short gamma, and we'll see why it's short gamma, you ask people, what's the opposite of fragile, what do they answer usually? Sorry? Durable, robust, resilient, uh, strong. Uh, what, what else? Okay, very good. Okay, so when you ask people, even at LSE, yeah, good, yeah, they don't say anti-fragile. When you ask people at LSE, what is the opposite of negative? What's the opposite of negative? Positive, very good. So what's the opposite of negative gamma? We know it's positive gamma, all right? So it's not neutral, it's not zero. No, the opposite of negative. Very good. Now, what's the opposite of convex? Concave, very good, very good, very good. So why should, why on earth should the opposite of fragile be uh, durable? Think about the exact opposite of fragile with, imagine a package that is fragile and you're sending it to southeastern uh, Siberia, all right? To a cousin getting married. There's a lot of Siberians here, incidentally. Today I signed books and there are a lot of Russian names. Okay, so I'm sure someone has a cousin there. It's very far. So you want to write it for a post office at the Mongolian border, all right, who can pick up what you're talking about, all right? And, and, and along the way. So what do you write on it? Fragile, what? Underneath fragile? To describe what you want the postman to do. Handle with care, very good, all right? So you write it in Russian, Mongolian, Chinese, all those languages the package will go through, you agree? 
Very good. Now, the opposite of that would be what? If the package is robust or resilient, what do you write on it? I don't really care in all these languages. I couldn't care less about what you do. No, that's not it. So what do you write on it? Nothing. Very good. Now, the, opposite of, the exact opposite of fragile would be, what's the exact opposite of handle with care? Mishandle. Please mishandle. All right? So, and you write it in Russian, uh, in, 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 uh, in different languages, so people can understand that. Whenever you see that package, please mishandle it. That's the exact opposite. Well, it so happens that half of life does not have a name. You see? Half of life doesn't have a name. And then I explained the idea of antifragile long gamma is something that gains, uses disorder as fuel. Okay? And sure enough, I've given a few lectures, and by the end of the lecture, hey, what's the difference, with, the difference between that and, and resilient? What the fuck? I mean, I explained it for sport for an hour. So here I have footnotes. No, it's not resilient in one word, all right? No, it's not resilient. Okay, in a footnote, no, it's not resilient because people tend to... Okay, so this is what I'm facing now is emails that started. Someone, half the book, well, I read half your book, it's very interesting, uh, but why, uh, what's the difference resilient, right? So sometimes I'm glad it's a big book so you can, you know, uh, show it at people. You can't do it in university uh, environment, no, but outside. <laughs> okay, so this is sort of the idea, okay? Now, once you have a name for something, you can think about it in a constructive way. You know that the Greeks did not have a word for blue. Did anybody here study Homer? Okay, Homer. What's the name? How does he describe the sea? The wine dark sea, all right? Didn't have color blue. So they were not biologically colorblind. They were just culturally colorblind. It's fine, but if you want to you know, do something interesting, conceptual, you can't use the word blue. It doesn't exist. Same with the biblical Hebrew. Kahol came much later in, in, in uh, Semitic languages. So now we have a word for something. In fact, I didn't really invent. It's an option-traded word. Okay, I tell you. It's not, I didn't invent antifragile. Uh, but, I, but I was like, like uh, brain uh, uh, conditioned to think that robust was the opposite of fragile and outside of option trading. So all I'm doing is transporting what I wrote in Dynamic Hedging in 1997, in fact, with a Hong Kong edition, 1994, smuggled, all right, pirated. So effectively, uh, it's, it's now for 18 years, uh, uh, a document have been circulating with my ideas of higher order um, convexities and concavities that I'm translating outside of it. Why? One day, I woke up about 20, 20 years ago. I woke up and I said, you know what? Anything fragile is effectively short gamma. In other words, anything fragile does not like volatility. Uh, this is a glass, no? All right, I'm going to do a thing. And can, can someone find a way for this glass to improve? No. If there's an earthquake, you have earthquakes in London? Not that I know. No, no, okay, all right. Assuming you have earthquakes, I'm sure at LSE things are a little different. You have earthquakes. If, or someone starts to get angry with me, starts shaking the stable. Right? What's going to happen to this? It's either unharmed, upper bound is unharmed, or what? Or it's going to break. So this doesn't like volatility. Very interesting. So the, the, the shape of 
This is the fragile. The fragile is something that has, you know, any a random move. Okay, you can have random uh, events. It cannot affect you positively. So, so a, a truly fragile thing would have no variation up top. You have small variations here. You see, just a big down variation. That's the fragile. That's the robust. And that's the anti-fragile. Mirror image, all right? Very simple. Now, everything that is fragile has to be short volatility, dislike volatility. Okay. And we'll see why, and we'll see why it has to be concave to a source of disorder. So this is sort of like the idea of the book. Let me skip the technical now and go back to the uh, thing. I, I, there's a, actually, I don't know my slides, so I'm going to go through a lot of slides. Okay. Now, it so happens that anything that does not, not like volatility, does not like all of the above, I call them disorder brothers. Actually, I changed the name to cousins because the, some philosophers start sending me hate mail by saying that they're not exactly the same. All right? So you make them... No, no, first of all, I said there's equivalence. I said not exactly equivalent. Functionally, they are equivalent. And then I made them cousins. That way philosophers leave me alone for two or three years before they find something else. You know, and and uh, before coming back. But you, you see, think about it. Time, mathematically, time and volatility are the same thing for a stochastic process. In probability, time, randomness, uh, entropy, volatility, uncertainty, variability, incomplete knowledge, imperfect knowledge, they're all the same. Error, they're all the same. They're non deterministic functionally. Now, if you're a philosopher, you'll find differences. But you know what? In practice, none. So they all suffer from the same variability, right? From the same, okay, so the, 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 the anti-fragile gains from all of these. So now let's look at things in life that have, let me remove this so that you stop thinking in terms of uh, homework and graphs and stuff like that. And let's now look at things that are anti-fragile. And policy mistake made because we didn't have a word. When we didn't have policymakers, it was no problem because organically the systems understand it. But once you have policymakers, if they don't have a name for blue, you're not going to have color blue, you see? It's no longer nature, like a manufacturer, whatever it wants without policymakers. Examples of anti-fragility, go ahead, in any field. Ah, this is, uh, this is more complicated. London real estate prices is convex to inequality in the world because the 1% of the 1% of the population, you see, if they get rich, they want to buy a, a, a condo in front of uh, Hyde Park or in front of Kensington Park. They don't want to buy it further away, all right? So it could have something create for 120 million pounds, and you can give them an apartment much bigger with better sunlight a mile away for, five, for one million pounds, and they wouldn't buy it. This is what's happened. But this is more complicated. So he's good, but it's very complicated. He's an economist, no? No, okay. Sorry? Journalist. Journalist, okay, even better. <laughs> but, uh, no, 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 but this is, this is uh, something, I had to define the convex first, all right? So before getting to, to that, this is a very good point. Something else, something much more, uh, uh, you know, uh, pr uh, not practical, like uh, that you experience more immediately. Than, uh, Sorry? No, no. Talk, talk about your bones, talk about your life, <laughs> talk about anything. Now, uh, the, the anti-fragile is something that responds to a random event, 
you see, or response to anything by gaining from it. Typically, there's a mechanism of overcompensation. Now, let me use what words I could find in the history of anti-fragile, that concept. The, you've heard of Mithridatization from King Mithridates. He used to take poison every day. Uh, so, if, uh, so if someone tries to poison him, which was a common method at the time to get rid of friends and enemies, he would, he would, he would be okay. The problem is he couldn't commit suicide by poison. So it has disadvantages. And, and, and he was, luckily, he was not misreditized against swords. All right? but, so a slave, a slave to cut his head. But uh, the, uh, Nero's mother, Agrippina, you know, Nero, the emperor, tried to kill his mother. So Agrippina knew, knew it. She, you know, very colorful family, but, but you know, and also, uh, you know, true enough, she had killed a few husbands. So that way, so she took poison every day. It was common in Rome. You take poison, and it makes you immune to further doses. That's not anti-fragility. That's robustness. Because it makes you impervious to some stressors, but does not make you stronger overall. There's something else called hormesis in the medical literature. Not homeopathy, very different. Hormesis, where an organism actually gains from a stressor. See? It is a little complicated. I believe that there's no such thing as hormesis. It's just that you need that stressor, and if you don't get it, you get weaker. So you, you get re- you know, reestablish yourself. For example, if you, are, uh, if you starve yourself, you experience uh, a gain in strength. If you're ca- properly calibrated, if you're not uh, insulin uh, you know, uh, resistant, uh, that's hormesis. Okay? That's a stressor that makes you bounce, uh, you know, bounce off and get better. There are a lot of mechanisms uh, where people overcompensate. But people don't talk about it because, of course, we don't understand. We think that robustness should be the aim. In psychology, people talk about post-traumatic uh, disorder, no? Trauma and stuff like that that comes from, you know, difficult uh, episodes. But nobody tells you anything about, or few people talk about post-traumatic growth, overcompensation, where you actually get stronger from overcompensation. Now, the way I view it is as follows. And if I set a boundary between two different systems, one system is, okay, I call the difference on the uh, uh, strong qualitative differences between a cat and a washing machine. Okay. In other words, between the engineered and the organic. Can someone explain what difference you have between the engineered and the organic, between a cat and a washing machine? Washing machines didn't evolve. Something else. Let's not look at history. Something very practical in the way they function. Yes? If you drop a cat, it will learn how to land on four feet better next time. If the washing machine will break down. Okay. Washing machine never self heals. Okay. So you need to fix it for every for the smallest. the smallest little hitch. It needs continuous maintenance. Um, and the organic needs the stressors to communicate with the environment. And, and actually, it's much smarter than risk managers. Risk managers, when you make an allowance for things, you allow for the maximum harm you've had in the past. You agree? That's how they calibrate something called stress testing. Your body doesn't. Your body overshoots. 
if I, get, if I lift 100 pounds today, my body doesn't adjust to lifting 100 pounds in the future. It adjusts to lift 105 pounds. It's, it's called extrapolation from the environment. And this extra five, is, that's the anti-fragility. In other words, you, over, you prepare for worse than what you've had, so it makes you stronger. So you get stronger from weightlifting, you get stronger from starving, you get stronger from these episodes. Effectively, there's something we'll see later, I call Jensen's inequality. Something needs variability if it has been made, if it was made for a random environment. We are made for a random environment. We're not made for something smooth with no variation. Therefore, you benefit from Jensen's inequality. On that in a few minutes. Now, the policy mistakes in economics, clearly, is to mistake a cat for a washing machine. All right? You, you think that uh, you have to eliminate the seasons, anything organic. You think variability is continuously bad. And by doing so, well, if you put a human being in, a, in bed, you say, we're going to eliminate all variability to make him safe. For six years, what happens to him? Brittle bones, break bones, and, and of course... Six years in bed, he'll have time to digest. I have 600 pages of math accompanying this, so hopefully he can read some of them and, and find typos because nobody can find typos. Nobody gets to page, beyond page 25. Anyway, the, the six years in bed and you come out of bed, you, you die if you take the... Uh, if you go down Holborn, you know, at, at, you, you die from germs. All right. anyway, so this is sort of like the story. Now, there's something fundamental that something is organic, it communicates and grows with the environment via stressors, via variability, and it needs variability up to a point, you see. That's one uh, central element. And, of course, the policy mistakes, we'll talk about them later or in questions, but <coughs> policy mistake is to, again, try to smooth things beyond the necessary. And effectively, that's what we, try, we do in the medical domain, in the political domain, in so many things, even in education, <laughs> try to put too much order into something. The, now, how is the book organized? I don't know how many more minutes we have. About 15. 15 more? Yeah, okay, so 15 more, translation 21. So we'll have, we'll have time to go through different chapters of the book. This is not one, you know, it's like people idea book, what's the idea, all right? There's, it's, there's six different topics treated in the book. So each one is called book, book one, book two, book three. Uh, and each one of them is standalone, sort of standalone topic. The first one is the actual mechanism of anti-fragility in the system. What ha you, in your, in your system, the, in order not to age, you have to have the bad proteins weak. And that when you ingest a poison, poisonous substance, you get stronger because you're killing these. When you starve yourself, you do, there's a mechanism called uh, to, to eat yourself, to eat your own, uh, uh, eat your own cells, okay, the, 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 in medicine, uh, where you eat the bad protein, and that supposedly is good for cancer. The, the, so I call it anti-fragility by layers, and it's not my idea. I wrote, I was wrote the first draft of the book, and I was, I was studying Hermesis when a geneticist and his team read the draft, and sent me a paper they had written on it on anti-fragility and aging and how the mechanism, the, the individuals. I won't bug you into biology because I still don't understand how it works, but, or sort of I do, but I can't talk about it. I can talk about the restaurant business. A system 
that is anti-fragile is a system in which the upper layer, that is the collective, benefits from the fragility of the components. You see? Your system, you have to have, and it's a necessary condition for something to, for a system to take shocks. You have to have, that's evolution. So you have the species, the individuals. Okay, you have the collective, you have the parts. Well, take the restaurant business, you have the fragility of every restaurant makes the collective anti-fragile, okay? particularly when errors are small. This is book one. I won't spend a lot of time on it where I go into these, except to say one thing very emotional, that we need the entrepreneur. A system that learns from its mistakes, let's compare two systems. The first one is uh, the transportation system. Okay? Every plane crash translates into lower probability of another plane crash. See, unless you have, of course, uh, I don't know, some of the Martians invading or something like that. But within how the system is built, you never let an error go to waste in the system. Unfortunately, people die, but the collective benefit, because you're going to have fewer, your probability if you survive, is, is, uh, is, is, is better. So I call that what kills me makes others stronger. Okay. And then you have to have sacrifice of individuals, and, and we have dealt with it. You know, so saints, people who have sacrificed themselves for others, soldiers, fallen soldiers. And I said, okay, why don't we make entrepreneurs as respectable, or not that as, you know, in, in, say, almost as respectable as fallen soldiers? Because without them, we wouldn't have a good economic system. It's not bonus earners who make economic, cause economic growth, it's entrepreneurs. Likewise, you know, failed restaurants are the ones allowing you to have your three-course uh, gourmet meal tonight after this to recover from, you know, my, uh, dis uh, whatever disturbs you in my lecture. Anyway, so this is book one. Quickly, book two is about something called modernity and a denial of anti-fragility with something called human interventionism particularly in the medical domain, introduced in the medical domain, but it maps exactly the same in the policy-making domain. Uh, interventionism is when people play with, with uh, intervene in a system when it's not necessary. So you have something called harm done by the healer, iatrogenics. If you go see a doctor for an unnecessary operation, you have one in 20,000 chances of not leaving the hospital one in 50 chances of getting, catching a, a, a virus. So net, net, probabilistically, you have a loss. It's called, I call it iatrogenics. I mean, I, it's called iatrogenics, but I map it mathematically as a probabilistic loss from seeing from a procedure. Like if you do a back surgery uh, for sciatica, for example, six years later, you have equal probability of being cured as someone who did nothing. But every time you go on the operating table, well, first of all, you spend $6,000 plus you have all these morbidities that come from the risks. So you adopt the risks, you get a balance sheet that's negative. So this is book two, interventionism. Book three introduces <laughs> Fat Tony, all right? And it's called, uh, the, I mean, it's about prediction. And my idea of the black swan is that in some domain, very complex domain, we can't predict. So it can't, you know, but we, of course, use it because the word prediction doesn't work well. Because events are not defined. So predicting war kills five people or 2,000 people or 2 million or 20 million 
it's a, it's not the same, uh, you know, uh, it's not the same thing. So it's very hard. Um, I have some technical work on probability around that. So it's not there's some systems in which you have to have a non-predictive strategy. That non-predictive strategy means have redundancies rather than pro project the future. And and then you can rank people based on uh, sensitivity to, pred to pred prediction error. That's sort of my book, but Fat Tony is there because he smells fragility, and people who tend to be predictive in predictive mode, he calls them suckers. Sorry for the expression, it's not elegant, but he's not elegant, Fat Tony. He has a friend, Nero, who's a little more elegant, but, but, but I don't know how elegant. Uh, so Fat Tony tells you he who is in predictive mode will eventually blow up. He can smell them, and he makes a shekel out of it, and then he's fat, visibly, because he's an expert in restaurants. So that's a Fat Tony uh, uh, chapter. And in it, we go into the following. I define convexity. How does this work? No. Hold on, let's see if this works. If I had the right slides, because you never know. Someone may have, okay. We have something commonly uh, called technical problem. Okay, so, um, ah, okay, all right, so now I go, all right, so I go this way, okay. Um, now let me show you why every fragility has to have nonlinearities and why everything nonlinear has to be either fragile or antifragile, because everything nonlinear is either long gamma or short gamma. For in option trading terms, it's obvious. In non-option trading terms, it's hard to explain. And uh, in biology, there are only two papers that got the point, that map between uh, long volatility, long, uh, uh, enjoying variability, and convexity. But let me explain uh, exactly what it is. This is concave. You agree? Okay. Think of, but you don't do it, jumping 10 meters. If you jump 10 meters, you die, no? Even in London, people die. Okay, all right, okay. Now, if you jump 10 times one meter, would you die? No. Okay, so the whole concept of harm comes from the fact that every incremental meter is riskier for you, up to a point, up to the point when you die, okay? Harm is bigger. If I sm uh, smash a car 50 miles per hour against a wall, I'm harmed a lot more than 50 times one mile per hour. You agree? All right. So a large stone hurts you a lot more than the equivalent stone in pebbles if I throw a lot of all these pebbles at you. So here you can exactly see why the too big to fail is bothersome, why the large is not necessarily good. But look at this curve. If harm were linear, Okay, your harm to us were linear, we'd be dead. Because cumulatively, just walking into the office would have enough harm to kill us. So you have to have nonlinear harm. <laughs> and that shape needs to be concave. That's sort of like, this is, if I, that's my message, that's my technical message. Everything revolves around it. Because the short gamma, we know how to do with it, this is what I had to prove. Why? Because the probability of jumping 10 meters is very, 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 very small compared to the probability of jumping a million times one-tenth of a, a, a millimeter. You see? 
So, and this is what makes, uh, what makes this concave. Objects that have survived have to have nonlinear harm. Look at this. You can tap it 10,000 times, you agree? The odds of being tapped gently are uh, 5,000 times higher than the odds of being tapped. Should I do it? No. A little, uh, with, a little stronger, uh, with a little stronger impact. With this, we can figure out if you want to, why there are a lot of things that are fragile. And this is the definition of fragility that's universal. It explains, for example, why when you have a project of 100 million pounds in the UK, cost overruns and delays can be up to 30% longer than a 5 million pounds project. Because the errors, the, the, the unexpected, harms you in a nonlinear way. You can see the difference between these two curves, the linear harm to event size and the nonlinear. Very large events harm you disproportionately more. That's the definition of fragility. Everything that's harmed by the linear has exited the gene pool or exited the environment around you. That's pretty much the central point. Is this clear enough? I mean, it's not, it's not easy to derive, but uh, so, so there's something to do if the probability distribution is such is declining in a certain way, which almost all probability distributions do, then this is a necessary condition. Survival probabilities determine the fact that you're only harmed by the concave. You see, let me give you another example. If a firm is fragile to me, it's harmed by a 10% drop in sales a lot more than 10 times 1% drop in sales. You see? A 1% drop in sales, if, if it were, if a 1% drop in sales variation harmed you the same linearly, then you'd be gone. But typically, you have to be harmed more by the tail event than by the regular event. And, and this we'll see is, is, is uh, you can see it everywhere. It's a mathematical equality, all right? It's like 1 plus 1 equals 2 mathematically, but you can verify it in so many, it's shockingly, uh, deceptively easy to, 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 to see around. Okay, but we'll get to it in a minute. Now, book uh, three on prediction talks about Seneca. And, and let's see how we ease into it via Seneca. Seneca figured it out. Definition. Now, you saw the concave and you saw the convex. A convex is anything that has more upside than downside from a random event. You agree? You can see it here. Look at this graph up top. For an equivalent move, the pain is smaller than a gain. That's convex. And for the bottom one is concave. The gains are smaller than a pain. Okay? And of course, these map exactly in time space. This is a convex, the concave. This is a linear, and this is a convex. Okay? So, what did Seneca figure out? He figured out that the only way to have a good life as a Stoic, and people misunderstood him except for a, a UK academic, Margaret something, I forget, I forget names, I'm just like, I came this morning from New York. Uh, Margaret something, Gray, Gray something. She figured out the, the truth about Seneca because she read him, because other academics read other academics, read other academics, so have this misperception. What did he figure out? He figured out, he was a Stoic, but his idea was not to be like a vegetable immune to emotions. He just wanted to avoid the sting of negative emotions. He was the wealthiest man in the world. When you read something like Stoic, Montaigne, I, I tend to, I, I've read philosophy most of my life, but when I read someone real, like 
like Seneca, he was a doer. His big problem was, if I lose my wealth, what happens to me? So he did not want to be in a situation where if he's a random, a, a, he's more harm than good, you know, he get more harm, you get adjusted to wealth, more harm than good from his wealth. You agree? So how did he deal with it? Well, mentally, he would fake like being a ship, in a shipwreck, uh, live like a poorer person for two or three days, and then he'd be okay now. You see, he, he would no longer have the string of, or, and mentally also every morning he wrote off all his possessions. But, but, but one caveat, when he said he faked being a poor person, he traveled only with one or two slaves. All right? <laughs> so from this we have the rule, the convex is if random events, if a 1% move up in a market gives you more benefits than in absolute value a 1% drop in the market. You see? If you make a million dollars, if 1% up, and you lose $500,000, 1% down, then you're convex. And the reverse if you're concave. Second order effects dominate. This, okay, all of them map to the same, all right, representation, okay? Now, this explains too many things. Way, way too many things. There's hidden convexity in things. We call it convexity bias, and it can be mapped mathematically. What can it explain? That's, I move into book four. What you have, have you heard of something called trial and error? Okay, very good. You're familiar with it, no? Okay, what, what does trial and error mean? The biggest misnomer in history. It should not be called trial and error. What should it be called? Trial with small error. <laughs> it's a big difference. When people talk about luck, serendipity, all that, they're not talking about luck. They're talking about an exposure that's convex to luck. And I call this a conflation problem. And what I've manufactured here, I mean, we have so much literature here now against this notion of top knowledge. Now you have competition between knowledge and convexity. In action, you're convex. You don't have to understand what's going on. And if you have position to benefit from events more than you're harmed, do you agree? Something trivial, Talos figured it out, and then it was forgotten. Talos made a fortune with olive presses on a convex bet. Aristotle explaining the thing attributed to knowledge. Now I have this graph here. It's mathematical. You see what I call the convexity bias? Okay. This is a wealth process, how, how wealth or formation of knowledge or anything. Well, you have convexity bias is how much can come from convexity. And look, knowledge edge, how much can come from knowledge. So I say intelligence is a very poor substitute for antifragility. For, for positioning. Okay. If you follow this, then you realize we're in trouble because we pay too much importance to what they call the teleological. You think we know where you're going as compared to optionality, where the only intelligence you have to do is figure out is what you found is worth keeping, called ratcheting up. So this is my book that bothers people the most because you go, uh, Terence Keeley, who is not here today, you know, last time I was lecturing, he was here, I was praising him, and was lucky to praise someone, not knowing he's in the room. But Terence Keeley went through, um, and of course, a lot of people did that after him, uh, the history of, uh, of science. The history of science. Technology doesn't come from science. In textbooks, it comes from science. In reality, it doesn't come from science. Science comes from technology. Tinkering, people discover things. But you have a problem is that those who tinker 
are engineers collectively sometimes, okay? They don't write books. So I call that lecturing birds how to fly. And actually, it's here in the LSE, in the workshop that in your department, that I came to show, for example, why we had much more sophisticated formula than Blackrose formula by traders, but they never wrote down that we tracked them. We had like, uh, I don't know, hundreds of papers of how people traded in the 18th, 19th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century. And I called it lecturing birds how to fly. And here, they told me, well, it's very strange. Why? Because last week at the seminar, there's a gentleman from Rutgers who gave the same story. I said, oh, oh wow. You know, you're scared, you wrote a paper. And someone else wrote, he said, no, no, but it was not about uh, derivatives uh, pricing formula. It was about the jet engine. And then, of course, there are a bunch of people that did these studies. Like Keeley showed that it was hobbyist, no agenda, playing and toying. It was optionality. Optionality is like flaneur. You're not on a highway without exits. You go, you follow what you're finding. So the way to probe uncertainty... And effectively, for those of you, let me put some math at the end here. Oh, no. Oh, you know what? It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. All right, that way I, can, I know where I'm heading. Uh, no. Okay, now it looks like I really need help. All right. The, the, I really need your help now. It's, uh, okay. Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you can come, you can come. All right, this is technology. The, the, okay, so let me explain what I mean by trial and error. It has to be small error, and benefiting from luck is it's quite uh, nonsense. It's been positive convex exposure to luck. And then you have, in, in that case, you have... Uh, okay, that's good, no? Okay. If you have small downside, push here, it's not coming. Okay. Does someone know how to use PowerPoint? Okay. The, the, okay. Uh, uh, you know, I, I have another six minutes. You have to take these well, as bonus. You, you, you get extra time for this. Okay, very good. Um, can someone help me here? This is uh, in a room, typically. Some tinker rather than theoretical top-down uh, methods. Okay, anyway. So you can see it in a lot of things, how education uh, inhibits uh, tinkering because you think you know something. And Keeley effectively showed what happened with state funding and education is killing all these hobbyists, all right? And, 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 and uh, it's no longer a free market. He's an academic libertarian. Well, I am. I'm not libertarian in a political sense, 100%. In academia, I am libertarian in, in, in the sense that I don't, organization, I think, create fake uh, uh, stabilization of knowledge and don't produce much. But the problem is he became chairman of the university. Okay. So, so there is an inconsistency. But, uh, but he's a practicing scientist, so he sees how things are done rather than science writer who looks in books and looks backwards at the process with a narrative. So this is uh, my book number uh, six, uh, no, book number uh, five, okay, where I talk about convexity. This is working? Yes. Now, to go to, to go to the next page, how do I go? Yeah. It's, not, it's not doing yeah. it. You, you, let me tell you, we need... Oh, okay, this one. Okay. This is called fragile technology, right. 
Okay, there are two kinds of system. If you're concave, okay, all right, the, if you're concave to uncertainty, let me explain the difference. There are systems where you're concave to sources of uncertainty, your short volatility, a plane ride. A plane ride is eight hours to New York. If you're lucky, you can save, if something unexpected happened, a lucky events, event, you save half an hour. But if you're unlucky, it can be two days, three days, four days, you see. So you realize that uncertainty tends to lengthen your, your expected mean project. You agree? Well, so the reverse applies to tinkering. Uncertainty increases your, your uh, expected return. How do I move this? Uh, from here? Okay. So, so stay, but stay here. Stay here, please. Don't, don't, don't go. All right. Now, there's one slide I want to show you uh, before. Okay, this, this, let's not move on this one, okay? Although the fonts have disappeared. And then I started applying something called Jensen's inequality. This is convex. You're in medicine. Very simple, very simple rule. If you're long volatility on something, anti-fragile to a source, you'd rather have 50% of a dose today and 150% of a dose tomorrow than 100% of the dose in both days. You agree? In other words, variation, lack of steadiness benefits you. Well, this simple graph, okay, was discovered in medicine in one with pulmonary ventilators, where, where, you, you, uh, where you, instead of giving the same dose, you vary it a little bit, the patients do a lot better. But now, if you read all the literature effectively without knowing about this, they're not mapping it that way, but they should be mapping it that way, that the, the can I point? The, the, okay, let, let's say, yeah, this does this point. <laughs> <laughs> all right, this is great, all right. It's not pointing. Okay. And, uh, have a dose. You see the line up top? You're going convex. You'd rather have a dose of, um, when you're anti-fragile, you want to have variation in your dosage. You'd rather have, effectively, there's no meat for two days, and then a lot of meat one day, than meat, the, the protein, the three days in a row. Because we're made to eat stochastically. And somehow... Uh, uh, episodic uh, deprivation of protein seems to work for the human body. Okay, that's, I mean, I'm trying to map what doctors have discovered without calling it Jensen's inequality. And in this book, of course, I give them graphs and I have other papers where you map Jensen's inequality to medical field, it maps 100%, where you know from the curve what works and what doesn't work. This is uh, uh, sort of the idea of uh, the application of this to medicine. Convexity applied to so many fields. But the whole book is about what's convex and concave to a source of randomness. Continue now. There's a book called Via Negativa, where removal is more potent than adding. And, and because in a complex system, when you add something, you don't know the consequences. But if someone is going against nature and smoking or doing something unnatural, you know that there's no side effect if you stop someone from smoking. You agree? So this is sort of Via Negativa. How do you... Uh, Via negativa is removal, the potency of removal, and it flows from Jensen's inequality. From the same thing, you can derive that it's better to walk and sprint than jog. 
And all of these just working from the numbers. You told it matches, it matches, it all has a general, I mean, my thesis prof, uh, uh, professor is here, convexity, and she sees it as long volatility, no? Of course, for anyone who dealt with option, we see it as long volatility. But it's hard to explain to people who see it in other, uh, in other domains. Now the final, final, final. Can I go to the f uh, first slide? Ah, this works. No, don't touch it, don't touch it. <laughs> now we go into the ethics world. Okay. The ethics, very simply defined, and risk management as how many more minutes? Should we say three? Three. Okay. <laughs> you see this blow up. Uh, you, you see these variations up top. Imagine that when the, when there are profits, and you're a banker in a the city, they go to you, and when there are losses, they go to the taxpayer. Okay. So this is. It, what I call uh, an asymmetry that has never happened before in history, of a lack of skin in the game. All right? And then I go into Hammurabi's law, how he solved the problem, and he solved it uh, in, a, in a following way. If you have um, the architect uh, builds a building, he said architect or engineer, but my Babylonian is not very fluent, so whatever, okay? The builder builds a building, puts up, a, builds a house, and the house collapses at some point in time. The architect is put to death. Now, it's not that they had something, Hammurabi had something against architects. What was the reason? It's because the best place to hide risk is in delayed blow-ups, in the in a, in a, in a, in a corners, you see, in the foundation. Just like in finance, the best way to hide risk is in things that don't appear to be risky, you hide them, right? So, and the eye for eye came from that rule, and the ethical, uh, I mean, when you know they ask uh, Rabbi uh, Hillel, they told him, can you recite, explain the, the entire Torah on standing on one foot? He said, yes, don't do it to others, but you don't want them to do it to you. And the rest is commentary. And effectively, all modern ethics are based on that, okay? whether negative ethics via negative or positive ethics. Everything comes from the simple one. So I went back and said, okay, let's remap it as long option. Okay, when you transfer harm to others, and it lines up, you have three categories of people. People who have skin in the game, who are ethically calibrated. I don't harm others with what I'm doing. Okay, that's people who are ethically calibrated, skin in the game. I'm not harming others. If I predict something, I'm harmed first. Or I am harmed as much as others, or more than others, okay? That is ethical, individual, ethically calibrated. You have the people with no skin in the game, bankers. When they make money, they spin a story that they're smart. When they lose money, we bail them out, and they do it again, all right? That's bankers. Uh, and then you can build the, uh, why small is beautiful, because if s someone is sitting in Washington from a spreadsheet, he can harm others. No penalty, no shame, whereas in small village you have shame. Stuff like that, okay? To reestablish the symmetry. This is, a lot of pe people think it should have been written as a book. Both via negativa and this one should have been written as an entire book, separate books. This one called Asymmetry in Ethics, but in fact, you know, I don't like, my idea is you don't write a book. I'm writing a cont continuum of works. And this is, to me, the central thing, because you can issue rules, very simple rules for society. Okay, 
that how calibrated. And now there's a category of people who, in fact, don't have any upside. The reverse bankers, firefighters, they have downside, no upside, but for the sake of others. These are the saints, these are the people, all right. But now, if you know a little bit of English history, or European history, or any history, you'd realize that the people at the top of the pyramid were those who risked their lives for the sake of others. Hannibal, first in battle. The Lord protects his, you know. The, 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 you, you get the idea that the hierarchy. At no t- time in history have we had so much power in the hands of people who don't have skin in the game. After writing this book, I got a message from a firefighter. He said, why is it so easy to understand what you write, but it's not easy for academics? I thought about it. I said, what's this? Explain a lot of things. Why is the economic establishment okay, still in this bullshit environment and continuing after everything failed? Why? Because they're not harmed. We take the harm. They're not harmed. Academics are not harmed. So they continue producing whatever it does to fit their journals. All right. So they're not harmed by their mistakes. They're not. Why do predictors keep predicting? They're not harmed by prediction. So I have my ethical rule. I never, uh, rule. I never predict. I tell you what I'm doing. So in this book, actually, there's something. This, a friend of mine, Dr. Professor Gigranzer, who was here at some point, yeah, said one thing. Never ask a doctor what you should be doing. You get a better answer if you ask him what he does. Okay? And, you, and then never, never, never issue a prediction. Tell people what you have. That's it. So thank you very much, and let's enter the Q&A. Hey, thank you, uh, Professor Talib. Uh, we've got um, we've got at least half an hour for uh, half an Q&A. hour. Uh, well, usually uh, it's five. <laughs> this is for people to ask you questions and ah, you respond. Okay, so I continue. Uh, had I known, I usually continue speech. I don't listen to questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, it, there is a roaming mic, uh, so if you'd like to put your hand up, if you have a question, if you do have a question, please say who you are, ideally say uh, if you have an affiliation. So how about we start off with, with the lady in the front here? Um, so would, would it mean that, for example, in a situation where you have um, bottom-up systems, maybe in a micro-credit-type situation, that that would be considered more sustainable? And, and exactly, and, and let me show you exactly why. Uh, the, 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 as you get bigger, say elephants break a leg. Distributed uh, uh, mice are, there's two effects. Mice are more robust than elephants. Okay, you, you can try it, but I mean, don't try it. It's not, uh, it's not easy. I don't want to harm elephants, too many of them. But also, a system of mice, of independent mice, of the same weight, you see, is vastly more robust than, than one elephant of equivalent weight. You see, why? Distributing uh, decision-making. And I noticed one thing in the book. I talk about Switzerland. Nobody would understand, all right? Nobody understood why why I'm talking about Switzerland. They've got to be blind, talking about Europe top-down, how we need the unified Europe for strengths. And smack in the middle of Europe, you have the most successful country in the world that doesn't have a government. It doesn't have a government. It's municipalities. And they tinker each separately. And when things work, okay, they all adopt it. It's a, it's a place where nobody knows the name of the president. Meanwhile here, when I ran into Rohan Silva, and, and we're talking about nature, uh, and, Steve, uh, and uh, Steve Hilton, 
we, we, we're talking about, he's talking about the program by uh, Gordon Brown that if a pin falls in a hospital in the North Lake District, in the Lake District, you should hear it in Whitehall. You see the difference? And then people, you know, put their money in Switzerland as, you know, to hide it and stuff like that, and, and they go as refugee, political refugees. They didn't realize exactly this point, that small is, not just, is, 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 is more than beautiful. Small is safe, has a lot of attributes, and, and I managed to, in a book, there is, I hid it because Alexis, my editor, is here. She said, no more mass. There's a derivation of small is beautiful from here. And, and, and a lot of people have, you know, sent me papers. You see, when you put your paper on the web, a lot of scientists send you papers. Dams, same thing. A big dam is very dangerous. Small dams may work. The same idea applies across about every single project. And more and more now under complexity. We have to be smaller than you were a century ago. To just serve it because random events now affect the big much harder than the small. Okay, thank you. Um, so microcredit, yes. Yeah. The gentleman there, he people with no hair should have priority. I quite agree. <laughs> Sorry? Uh, Vincent Scherer, uh, an unaffiliated entrepreneur. I wonder if you could just tell us a, a a bit about your thoughts about... About what? About the impact of debt on fragility, on uh, okay. particularly v our, our system at the moment. V very good. So here I have the world of three categories, fragile, robust, anti-fragile. Right? They're not quite absolute categories, because, but the debt is the exact opposite of redundancy. You see? Debt is when, when redundancy is if I have a lot of cash under the mattress or gold or whatever it is or food or spam or hummus typically cans of hummus under the mattress. that's redundancy okay so you have two kidneys I assume or born with two kidneys as redundancy by nature debt is uh, uh, when you don't have kidneys and you, you sell them all right and you go borrow every day at one o'clock to do your dialysis that's sort of like debt so debt is money you borrow so what happens is that if you have debt you're very concave to errors and you can see it in a simple test, a heuristic that I did. You lower your sales by 10%. You raise your sales by 10%. You're going to harm a lot more by dropping sales than by rising sales. That's your concave to a source of randomness, and that comes from debt. So you can map mathematically how debt fragilizes you under an increase of level of uncertainty in the system. Uh, other questions? I mean, now we should alternate, you know, hair and no hair. It's not like uh, an absolute necessity. Oh, this is stuck. Uh, take your pick. There are a lot of questions. Uh, I take them, not you? Yeah, you ah, take, okay. You take the gentleman pick. there, because he's smiling, right? So he's probably caught a mistake somewhere. It's wonderful, yeah. Hi, Professor Salad. Thanks, journalist. Uh, You're um, a journalist? Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I've just got a, a question about your view of um, entrepreneurs. And you talk about entrepreneurs are sort of should, uh, you made the illusion to entrepreneurs should be treated maybe like. Uh, fallen soldiers like heroes because they're the sort of the engines of growth in economic, yes. economic society and, and restaurant, restaurant people. Um, and then you uh, also talked about maybe, I think that you've been on record attacking sort of bankers and the way that the, that the taxpayers have had to, had to bail them out. Um, I mean, what role do you think that banks and uh, sort of derivative traders and so forth should play within the economy? Bankers and? Uh, tra traders, derivatives okay, traders. Okay, all right. The, 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 the point is very simple. If you don't have a high degree of leverage in the economy, we wouldn't be talking about bankers today. 
You see, bankers have an incentive to have leverage in the economy. Uh, bankers didn't want to mess with Silicon Valley, so people raised their money independently. You know, bankers are never there when you need them. The Industrial Revolution was not produced, helped by bankers. You know that. The French say, on ne prête qu'aux riches. The bankers come later, and they lend you if you want to wage war. That was the old days. Letter credit was good. It's good banking, but it's not leveraged banking. Or, like California, they didn't lend. This is why we had a crisis, a crash, without any long-term harm compared to today. So this idea of bankers, not bankers, the, 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 the increased leverage in the system is that's, these things I wrote about in the Black Swan, okay? And this is about fragility, so I don't want to stay too much with it. But increasing fragility in the system, uh, and, and the way to solve it is, is, is rather easy because banks if, get big. So I had a proposal Actually, I think I put it in The Economist, the world in 2013. Actually, for someone who has trouble with journalists, I've published in a lot of articles, including the New York Times, and I say that uh, to increase my, to improve my health, usually my health jumps when I don't read the New York Times for two years. But I published in it, and I'm doing another one. Anyway, so I put it in The Economist. I propose the following. If your bank is, if your institution, any institution, is bailable out by the government, because it would be national emergency if that institution fails, then all the employees of the institution should be treated like civil servants. That's because de facto they are civil servants. They're backed by the taxpayer. So if you have that rule, then automatically people would, would shrink to normal size, and when they shrink to a size, they can no longer bully the government. Let me tell you the big, the big thing that happened to me. One day I was debating a lady who, I don't know what chairman of what, the Tornacho is chairman of uh, PepsiCo. And her argument, oh, I employ 650,000 people. The poor restaurant owner doesn't employ 650,000 people. Okay. She's going to be bailed out by the government because it's too many unemployed people. National emergency, whatever you want to call it. The gov- Once you become big, you control the government. So, and in America, they have a system where uh, the Republicans, they like small government but big corporations, right? And, and the other ones, small corporation, not small corporation, big government. So I don't, the, the, this whole thing of big is a problem, not so much um, the idea. The big, they control the government. If you have these rules of the government is not there to help you when you're big, but help the small, in other words, you're not allowed to bail out firms. You can only bail out individuals. The things would be completely different. It's quite radical, but that's... But here we're going back to the Black Swan, a book I don't like as much as this one or the previous one. So uh, questions related to anti-fragility, because a lot of this is about uh, regular life. Yes. Now, a question, uh, before I answer your question, he asked me about redundancy. No, that and the opposite of that is redundancy. Now, redundancy also is the way your body adjusts to, to random shocks. You build redundancy. Just like if you get scared a little bit, if you run out of hummus at home, you're going to go and load up on hummus. You agree? Well, your body does the same with anything, with resources. So this is uh, the redundancy. I see extra strength, extra muscle is a redundancy. It's a buffer that, that natural systems have an automatic way of doing that's remarkably, mathematically superb. Uh, anyway, question. Yes, uh, I'm a master's student in economics at the LSE. Um, my question was, what should economists take away from... Okay, let me tell you the, the problem. What should economists take away from it? The problem is they should... Uh, the pro- that's exactly the problem. Is what, before we had economists, the world was functioning very well. Okay? <laughs> it's like uh, 
lecture and verse, how, you know, and, and now the problem is we have economists. So it's the via negativa is they should work on removing economists by making them work on things that are harmless, like uh, poetry or philosophy, or it started with moral philosophy. Moral, I mean, actually what I'm suggesting is reconciling the idea that Adam Smith started with moral philosophy. So there is effectively a, uh, a problem with, uh, with economic policymaking, I call it heterogenics, it, except for some smart economists, of course, like Hayek was here, visibly, and Hayek would say the same thing. Okay. Hayek, he was here. Uh, uh, Popper was here. Popper wouldn't have said the same thing. But uh, the, the, you get the idea. So the, you want, and I have here, I have about uh, seven or eight pages of mathematical derivation of how, which economic models increase fragility in systems, simply using this, uh, the curve of second-order effect the one on Jensen's inequality. It's not shown very well because of fonts. Um, other, uh, other questions? Yes, the lady. Now we have, again, to be evenly distributed. Hair, no hair, gender, beards now. Beards also should be represented, yes. Uh, hi. Um, I have a question from personal experience. Um, I'm a new entrepreneur, and I wanted to ask about um, I don't, if we want to call it fair trade, the fair trade thing that like, um, like whatever business I do now, um, I buy my stuff from wholesalers, that they go and buy their stuff from, I don't know, stuff from Ghana, from whatever. They try to uh, help some businesses in certain countries that they don't have a good business. And then they, let's say, they buy them, they buy them off them like really, really cheaply, and I buy them much more expensive. So let's say if I, as an entrepreneur, wanted to do this step that this wholesaler is doing, and I, I go to, I start like getting my business bigger and yeah, going the, okay. to this country. Sorry. Just Let me, yeah, yes, yes. We, we can't stay long because other people get angry. Okay. Yes. But, so, yeah. uh, uh, the, I just trying to explain my idea. So, uh, if I go do this myself, would I? Do you think this? I, way? I have. Okay, I'm going to answer very frankly. I, I, I can't. Uh, uh, you know, I have no clue. Honestly, <laughs> I have absolutely no clue. I didn't no ask my question. No, no, I know, but 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 the, the, this topic of fair trade and and, and okay, forget it's not about fair trade. Just, well, I'm talking about wholesaler and small businesses trying to do the business of wholesalers. Do you think, as a small business, if I'm doing that myself? Would I be harming the economy? Like, would I be harming the business for the wholesalers? That means they'd be, they'd be um, helping other businesses? I, I have no idea. Honestly, okay. honestly uh, I have no idea. Maybe, not maybe like, we should No, no, there, there, I mean, I, I don't, there's nothing I've ever said that, that contradicts something I've said before. So if something I haven't thought about before, I'll never answer, you see. So another question. But please keep it short to a question. And no fair trade, no, uh, no, all right. I mean, it's complicated. I don't know what fair trade means to start with, so I have no idea. He's a gentleman came first. No hair, the gentleman there. No, no, but here, here, and then, the, yeah. Okay. No hair, short question. Uh, Nassim, it's Guru, by the way. Um, I have, you've mentioned modernity and some of the fragility of modernity. And we've seen what you've been doing with the, uh, the computer. Is technology inherently fragile? Yes, I have, I have an excellent question. And increases fragility. Excellent question, excellent question. Is technology inherently fragile? Yes, yes, and yes, and yes. All right, but let me explain how the interesting thing about it. How old is this technology? 
at least 3,000 years old. I know we take pride in it because it's made in Sidon, Lebanon, right? The glass, all right, so 3,000 years old. The, 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 how old is this? This, this, 500 years, all right? So, I'm, okay. There's something called Lindy effect. And the way you work by subtraction is using this Lindy effect. Anything non-perishable, anything non-perishable has a life expectancy, all right, going forward that's equivalent to its past life. And you can, however you define it, whether the car has 100-some years, will have another, statistically. Now, it's not a, a hard rule. It's a statistical rule in the sense that if someone gives me the age of a gentleman, and he's 50, okay, you can safely say, well, he has another 41 years to go. No? Insurance tables. If he's zero, he has 82 years to go. You get the idea? For technology, if it's 100 years, it will have 100 years to go. But, of course, there are exceptions. If someone is 50 and he has lung cancer, his life expectancy you have is no longer unconditional. You see? So it's the same applies to technology. Technologies come and go at a face that's shocking. But this is... And that's... That they're very fragile. They don't stay. This is the, the Lindy effect is the same applies to a book. You take a book that's been in print for 12 years, 12 years to go. Uh, uh, an idea, an ideology, something. So they tend to have that. The nation state is 150 years old. So it's much younger than city states. The city states will have an overwhelming advantage over it. So this is shocking for technology people, but look at, uh, we're using a table, he's sitting at a table, the, 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 you, tonight you eat with silverware, this Babylonian. The fork was lost and reinvented, lost and reinvented, and last time you got it here in this country, 300 years ago, all right, before you eat with hands, by the way. Up to 200 years ago, people ate with hands. Uh, uh, so, so but you realize technology, all technologies tend to have legs. There's, there's something. So it's what tells you modern technology. If you want to forecast the future, don't add. You take the, 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 the present as baseline and add to it. You know what you do? You take new technologies and remove them. <laughs> You're going to have new technologies in the future, but we don't know what. Think of how many uh, means of transportation we have imagined, right? And that, and, or, or ways of living, you know, that we imagined in 1950 that didn't take place. And think of how many things we have invented in transportation that never stuck. Now we have the car, the bicycle, and the, uh, and the plane. And of the three, which one is the fastest growing? Bicycle, right? The, the oldest. So it's shocking how, and technology is working. Now we have a computer here. But where technology becomes great is when technology is there to, be, to, to fake the natural rather than make us change. And, and there's, this is technology is, 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 is going to go. You see these right angles here? This is not natural. The, the modern technology, because you're not comfortable. The same reason we like variations, we are anti-fragile to variation in the environment. You know? in, a cave, in nature, you don't have smooth surface, and you don't have right angles. It's fractal. You have rocks and stuff, and wells of things that make you feel you know, more comfortable and actually improve your vision and start in the fractal environment. And this is going to go. So if I imagine uh, if we survive 500 years or 300 years and we live in houses that look more like fake uh, caves, more like in Barcelona, the, the building by the, by the eccentric supposedly fellow. But in fact, you enter it, you, see, you think you've been there before, you see. So this kind of thing. So these technologies, 
uh, this is what modernity has, uh, uh, what happened since technology now stands to displace modernity and to look like no technology. And, and we may be writing on tablets. The reason I like the tablet is because I can write on it. That's how we started writing. So the internet is in fact destroying the bad modernity thing because you no longer have a TV set with a family of, uh, of uh, 2.2 children plus two parents and, uh, and a dog and a quarter, all right? watching a television, you see. You no longer have that. You have more interaction between people, closer to... Uh, so, so this is where... And, and even in, in shoes, all right? These are fake shoes. Uh, not real shoes. You, you can have now souls that mimic walk-in nature, and you need variation in terrain. A lot of diseases come from variation in terrain. And walking on smooth surfaces, all this is modernity. It's going to go... I mean, look at anything built in the 17th, up to the 17th, 18th century, how the wealth of details... Nothing was without wealth of details. So the, the, that's how, so I wrote a piece, and I got so much hate mail, it's not even funny. Actually, someone extracted it from my book about the future is not going to be cool. It's put on Salon, had so many hits. Typically, the sale of my books are directly proportional to hate mail I get. <laughs> when I mentioned, like, this guy is nuts and stuff like that. But you look around you, see what has survived. Um, uh, the, uh, my, my, uh, uh, yeah, she wants to ask a question. Now her gender, yes. yes. Um, is it possible to live like a, a stoic in the modern, modern world? Yeah, of course you can live. But people don't quite understand that uh, stoicism is an ethical commitment. Uh, is some kind of ethical commitment. Uh, you can live ethically in the modern world. You have to do the following. Don't work for a financial institution. <laughs> and that, honestly. You can, at no time could, could people survive. Now you could do a menial job that gives you more freedom than anybody, you know. If you have a blue-collar job, you're very free, okay? Then people tell me, oh, you need fuck you, sorry. <laughs> F, the, uh, star, 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 money, all right? You don't need it. You can be, now you can survive uh, having a, a, a menial occupation in the modern world. To live ethically is mostly have skin in the game and have, what I say, not fit your profession to live ethically, the second rule, the book in, in, in that after that ethical thing, I talk about people who fit their beliefs to profession rather than fit their profession to their beliefs. And they always uh, they use what I call ethical crutches. Say, for example, you work for a lobby uh, firm, you're a lobbyist, lobbying for tobacco, all right, which we know kills people. You're going to find, you can say, oh, everybody needs to feed a family. Or you're going to find something to explain. You're, you're, you see, you're no longer free. You tend to find people, this is why I said that uh, a prostitute is much freer than a gold digger, you see. A, uh, and a, uh, and, and a, uh, those who make a living standing up or lying down are usually ethically more calibrated than someone who makes a living sitting down. And, so, and after writing this, no, no, it's, the benefits of this is I realized that I was writing sitting down. So now I use a stand-up, no, 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 now I use a stand-up desk. And, and the whole thing is, is my, my biology wants me to stand up, actually, all right? Stand-up desk is, uh, but, but no, but soon stand-up desk should be, I mean, if they start having, bankers start having stand-up desks, then, uh, then they will enter that category. Anyway, we can take more questions, no? Uh, yeah, we've got a few minutes, so uh, maybe from the top, somewhere if you want to ask one. Uh, the, the person there with glasses, 
Yeah, we have to have glasses, no glasses. We have to be, yes. Glasses. Um, I'm a farm manager and part-time student at LSE. I was just wondering, how do you reconcile the fact that none of us are going to live forever? You can only improve the human to a certain point. That, that none of us is what? We're going to live forever. You can only improve okay. the human this, this, this is a fake thing. We are not made to live forever. That's the whole point. We are not made, we are made, uh, but we are not made to die um, in a nursing home with, noses, with uh, tubes coming out of our noses. Right? The, for the ancient, you're made to live for the collective, for the improvement of the collective, and die an honorable death. Uh, an honorable death is typically on a battlefield or stand up for something. This is why my whole thing is about uh, ancient values. Is we have this micro-family, micro-life that you are the unit. You are not the unit. The collective is the unit. And you, by asking people questions, you can see the inconsistency in the way they think that uh, a black swan is their death. In fact, the real black swan is the death of themselves, their friends, family, uh, dog, uh, you know, uh, high school teacher. You see a bigger. So they are, if there are worse events than your death, then you're no longer alone. And effectively, is how much, how much difference you put between the collective and your own fate that that is defines how. Ethically, the, the layer, we are to be fragile. We're not there to live forever. Our genes are there to live forever. Or our contributions are there. This is a philosophical thing. Actually, in book one, I talk about it. And, in, and, and I revisit it in a book on medicine by going against all these attempts to increase longevity. We're not made to age forever and live forever. We're made to die as honorably as we can. All right? and, 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 and it's shocking, but that's what we're made for. And, 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 and life is to be valued in terms of how much, I mean, how honorable you've been, right? How, uh, and, and of course, I say the people we respect the most are those who have died, but particularly those who have died for their ideas. Particularly two, I said, I said two Eastern Mediterraneans who have died for their ideas, all right? Socrates wanted to die for his idea. That to me, is, that, that's a life, right? What would you rather be, Socrates and die for an idea? or die in some nursing home with uh, reading uh, uh, how Curtis Weill is going to give you a pill to live an extra three and a half uh, hours. That's not... That's not so. uh, who, who else? And, and the, the, the strengths of the system, the anti-fragility of the world, come precisely because we are mortal individually. Uh, the gentleman there raising his hand because he has... He seems to be excited. Thank you very much. I am certainly excited. It's but uh, two sentences, please, because we have so many other... Fascinating talk. Sorry? It was a fascinating talk, but it was fascinating because it was full of contradictions. Because contradictions. All right, full let's go. I mean, you, you finish your lecture by saying that I never predict, and yet you made your, your fame uh, by predicting uh, the, what you call, by claiming to predict the, uh, the uh, uh, earlier uh, economic uh, financial crash. That's we not a contradiction. Let's stop here with this contradiction. Let's deal with one contradiction at a time, deal with this one. You're saying there's a difference between the predictive system and fragility of the system. And you can say that if the system is fragile, it's going to eventually break. So this is how you, via negativa. That doesn't mean you're sitting down and predicting events. Okay, next question. Yeah, well, the question is this. Uh, next the, question, all right. The best way to fragility is to understand the issue. Sorry, uh, hold, hold, hold the phone yeah. open here. The, the best what? way to understand, I mean, the best way to enter fragility yes. is through understanding the world. To understand the world. Understanding the world, yes. Oh, okay, very good. Uh, that, that's great. So let, let's stop one second because we give him. 
the, the, let me explain what the project of, uh, thank you, thanks to him, I'm going to explain my project of idea. There are two ways to approach a complex system, something opaque. One way is to make theory, and theories come and go, they're fragile. The other one is to understand phenomenology, and they're more robust. And I'm proposing a third one, is to understand how they can break, which is very different. I'm not trying to predict uh, or understand mechanism of systems. I'm trying to figure out locally if this is fragile or not and try to make small little heuristics how to live with it. Like the heuristic of how to deal with the banks that the journalist asked me. Small little heuristics, it's called less is more little heuristics. I'm not, I don't want claims to understand the world because we've been trying, we're never getting close to anything valuable. How to deal with opacity, the unknown, how not to be a sucker. And that's the idea. And then we know very easily by removing sources, suckerdom, fragility is how we're going to do it. One, uh, more question, how many more questions can we handle? Yeah, one more. Yeah, let's, let's one one more. more, okay. Uh, well, someone, he didn't have glasses, so we can pick someone with glasses. We have to be, you know, the best way to select randomly is, you know, to have rules. Yes. Um, thank you. Hi. Um, I'm Edo, and uh, I'm a master's student in economics and philosophy. Um, thank you very much for your lecture. Unfortunately, uh, you didn't dwell very long about the topic of uh, interventionism. And uh, actually, I was wondering about a number of stuff. I, I guess the most interesting question that I come up with uh, in this particular topic was, would you feel that um, your arguments about interventionism are also arguments against a social state model? Okay, let's go here. There's something very important that, that close. It's going to take a few minutes to explain to you. I'm going to explain to you a couple of things. Emergency room surgery, we don't do enough. Okay? Uh, we over-intervene, and he who over-intervene will under-intervene when necessary because you deplete the resource. And let me give you two fields. The first one is medicine. Go back with convexity argument. If you're slightly hypertensive and you take a drug... That's over-intervention. You take a medicine to lower your hypertension. I'm not saying it's good to have hypertension. You take how many, what's the success rate of the drug? One in 53. And you have risk, and yetrogenics, medical harm, can be seen like this. As big downside, no upside. Because in the natural system so far, nature has never allowed us to find a drug that makes us better unconditionally, unless you're very ill. Now, if you're very ill, very ill, very hypertensive, what is the success rate of a drug? 80%, 80%. You see? So you see the difference? You have the same risk of harm by the drug, but in one case, you have 2% rate of cure. The other one is 80% rate of cure. Now, let me tell you something that's going to be very annoying. Ben Goldacre, I hope uh, I'm going to meet him, but he's uh, a smart guy. But I'm going to summarize the whole thing. How many more people are hypertensive, slightly hypertensive, than uh, what's the N of slightly hypertensive to very hypertensive? What's the ratio of people? Sorry? What's the difference between one sigma and four sigmas? You have a thousand times more people who are slightly hypertensive than people who are very hypertensive. You can have a thousand times people slightly ill, 
Now, the slightly ill nature saw a thousand times more of these people. This is what, you know, the, 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 than the other one. Now, what does pharma do? Think about if you're pharma. Who, where you're going to make your money? On a slightly hypertensive or the very hypertensive? Where? Slightly, there you go. So, there you go. So, this is a problem of interventionism. Interventionism is when you cure the slightly ill. You can make a lot more money working on slightly ill than on the very ill. All right? And that explains a lot of problems with convexity terms. So this is about hyperintervention. And so when someone tells me, again, ethically, I cannot tell you what to do. I tell you what I do. Someone tells me, what do you do when you're ill? I say, only see the doctor when I'm very, very ill. I mean, I won't tell you the disease. But then I see five of them. Okay. You see? To be, to be coherent with, with what I'm saying, you should be hyperinterventionist when you're very ill. All right. See five doctors, different ones, all right? And even cheat, don't tell the other one you're getting treatment from both, all right? Because really, toxicity is, a, you know, is a, to be convex, you see, when you're very ill, you're like long volatility. The drug is going to help you massively from your baseline, all right? And the harm is small in probability. You're long gamma. That's sort of, and I try to map it into any kind of intervention. Yes, when there's a crisis, we have to intervene. But when there's no crisis, you don't know what to do with Gordon Brown to smooth out the, every small fluctuation. So this I map. There are a lot of ideas in this book that are starting to come out progressively by people grabbing one or the other. But there are a lot of ideas. So we can't spend a lot of time on the idea, but this is, there are six different strains. This, the one that's irritating people now is medicine. Because what I'm saying about interventionism maps directly into uh, uh, the idea of risk. Okay, so I'm I, afraid I guess we're done. I'm going right. to have to intervene here. And, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> and, I have uh, my pen for much. book signing. Thank you very much. <laughs>